Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Today's Bible readings from Deuteronomy chapter 18, the whole chapter. So starting from verse 1. The Levitical priests, indeed the whole tribe of Levi, are to have no land allotted to them or any inheritance with Israel. They shall live on the food offerings presented to the Lord, for that is their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. This is the share due to the priests from the people who sacrifice a bull or a sheep, the shoulder, the internal organs, and the meat from the head. You are to give them the first fruits of your corn, new wine, and olive oil, and the first wool from the shearing of your sheep. For the Lord your God has chosen them and their descendants out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the Lord's name always. If a Levite moves from one of your towns anywhere in Israel where he's living and comes in all earnestness to the place the Lord will choose, He may minister in the name of the Lord his God like all his fellow Levites who serve there in the presence of the Lord. He is to share equally in their benefits, even though he has received money from the sale of family possessions. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you will dispossess Listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire any more, or we will die. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I'll put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name, anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. May your word live in us. So I was at a conference called Single Minded, in Sydney last year, and over morning tea, we were talking to some folk who turned up. I asked this one woman where she went to church, and she said, I used to go to an Anglican church, 
But now I go to a biblical one. Uh, her assumption was that there's only one kind of church that's biblical and all the others are also rands. I didn't ask what that church was, where she was now attending, but I had a few clues. Often in the scriptures, the way a church organises itself or runs is not given in detail. We're given general principles, but lots of the detail we might want is actually missing. So in these passages, last week I preached from Deuteronomy 17 on Tuesday, this week uh, from Deuteronomy 18 on Thursday, we have some general principles about how we might think of what a church is about, how it should be organised, what it's for, though some of the detail we might still be left wishing for. The big principle in Deuteronomy 17 that we looked at last week is that the word of the Lord, the scriptures, have ultimate authority under which judges and kings must lead, under which judges and kings take the law and apply it to others and to themselves. Judges and kings were the theme of Deuteronomy 17, but in Deuteronomy 18, the leaders, the categories of leadership are priests and prophets. The big principle in this chapter, I'll lay it out right from the outset, is that God provides for his leaders and therefore God provides for his people. All you, we need to do is depend on the Lord. We are his under shepherds after all. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. Of course, he's going to provide for us. We have to depend on him. He provides a great variety of leaders for his people, judges and kings and priests and prophets. There are different kinds of leaders. There's not just one template. We need different kinds of leaders who provide different kinds of checks and balances for other leaders. No one person has ultimate authority. There's no one style of leading that is the only style of leading. And in these chapters, we've seen judges appointed by the people and kings elected by the people, priests not elected but appointed, prophets not appointed but raised up by God, some with general oversight, some with particular focused oversight, some more public, some more private, both elected and appointed, they need to be bold and they need to be humble. Now, a church is a biblical church if it has a diversity of leaders with a diversity of roles, depending on the diversity of God's provision. And the Anglican church does that. So I'm here to tell you, finally, yes, it is a biblical church. <laughs> We see in the beginning of Deuteronomy 18 that God wants his leaders to depend on him. We read from verse 1, the Levitical priests, indeed the whole tribe of Levi, are to have no land allotted to them or to any inheritance within Israel. They shall live on the food offerings presented to the Lord, for that is their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance amongst their fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. They have no land to raise cattle or to grow crops. They have to rely on other people to provide their needs. 
their gift is the Lord himself. He's their inheritance. They're expected to rely on him and his people for provision of their daily needs, verses 3 to 5. Indeed, verses 6 to 8, if the Levite moves away from their hometown to live in Jerusalem, they still have the right to be provided for, even if it's not their family doing the providing. Now, if they move to Jerusalem, it's strangers and not friends, neighbours, not necessarily family, who have the responsibility to provide for them. They need to rely on the Lord, lean into the Lord, trust that the Lord will provide for their material needs. There's actually no description here of what the priest actually does, just their value to the community. They have to depend on God in ways that the judges and the kings don't. And in their own life of dependence, they give an example to other believers what they too should expect of the Lord, trusting in him for their daily bread. After all, there were individual priests in Israel, but the whole of Israel was a royal priesthood, as we are. The individual priests were providing an example of what all of us, the priesthood of God, should expect from him. Leaders make visible the values of the community. We've often heard the phrase, our people can't be what they can't see. Your example is actually one of the most important things you bring to your job as Christian leaders. Your example, particularly your example of character. There's a Facebook spat a couple of weeks ago that I was thinking I wanted to contribute to, but kind of held back. I'm making my job only to, only to be involved in one Facebook argument a week. That's my, that's my kind of rule. Anyway, a uh, uh, leading evangelical in Australia said, this is my advice for people who want to go to theological college. Don't do any practical ministry subjects. Only do the weirdest subjects that you think will be of no value to you because they will be of value to you. You should do as much Bible and history and theology, but avoid ministry subjects was the advice. I was so wanting to say something. <laughs> the reason I wanted to say something is I actually think we need to do practical ministry subjects, and Ridley does well in teaching them. We get hired because of our competencies but we get sacked because of our character or failings of character. And the great thing about doing ministry subjects at college is that we're learning to be reflective practitioners. We're learning to think not just about the task of putting together a sermon, but what it means that you as a Christian believer deliver the sermon. Our people can't be what they can't see. And we need to grow in competencies and skills, of course, but we need to do that in the context of being an example to the flock. Now, effectively, this passage is saying, ministers, you need to rely on other people to put money in the bowl. Well, that, that's an old 
old-fashioned kind of image, to put money in your account electronically. How do ministers ask for money? Because if you're going to be preaching sermons, eventually you're going to have to preach sermons about money, right? Uh, I'm pretty conservative in my understanding of sexual ethics, but when I was pastoring at St Jude's, we had a month every year only on the topic of money. We called it May Money Month. I figured that Jesus speaks a lot about money. Jesus speaks a lot about how we think about our possessions. We needed to spend at least a month a year talking about money and how we give it away. In a way, I'm, I'm not reliant on the live giving of a congregation week by week for my own salary but you will need to preach on money sometime. We need to train our people in what it means, the blessing of giving money away. And we need to grow comfortable in talking about money and not just when we're behind in the budget, but regularly. In fact, better off regularly rather than when we're behind in the budget. Paul in 1 Timothy 5.17 speaks about Christian leaders being worthy of double honour. They should get a pay rise. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 9, 13 to 14, of the value of being paid. And in Galatians 6, 6, Paul expects that all good things will be shared with your teacher. It's good to give money to support your pastor. But we have to be careful what kind of example the pastors, the leaders are providing in this area. Part of our example of depending on the Lord will impact the way we think about how we spend our money as pastors. And my general advice is that you need to be one step at least behind what other people are buying in your congregation. It's not to say that you can't have the flat screen TV, but only get the flat screen TV when it's normal in your congregation to have a, a flat screen TV. Don't lead the pack. Show what it means to on the Lord with your giving, with your spending, as well as in other ways of your leadership. Our people can't be what they can't see, but our people won't be able to fear what they can't hear. And the second section of this passage from Deuteronomy 18, we see uh, Moses preaching not just about the material needs of leaders, but also the spiritual needs of the congregation. In verses 9 to 13, there'll be itching hears. People will seek out mediums, seek out necromancers, seek out people who practice divinity. They want to hear from the Lord. So they're going to go to all the wrong places to try and find his voice. A few years ago, um, uh, a former principal, Peter Adam, rang the diocesan head office and said he wanted to speak to the archbishop, please. Now, the person on the other end of the phone said, she obviously hadn't heard him correctly, and so she said, so which one do you want? There's only ever one archbishop, right? Peter replied, I prefer the living one because <laughs> the scriptures forgive speaking to the dead. People will seek out the voices they want to hear. And verses 9 to 13 remind us there are ways that you should not seek out the Lord's will. 
Moses knows that it's a risky time for the people. They're about to enter the promised land. He's speaking lots of lessons about leadership. He knows that the people are going to find obedience difficult and he won't be there to lead them any further. He knows that they were already scared of hearing from the Lord directly at Mount Sinai, so God had given Moses to stand in the breach. Verse 14. The nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that means like Moses, from among you, from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when he said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God. It was too scary. Nor see his great fire anymore or we will die. Moses knew that the prophets, folk who'd speak God's words, speak into direct situations, was something that the people would continue to ask for. But... Uh, in this case, there were criteria for who you should listen to. There would be some fresh revelation, but not everything the people heard would be the Lord speaking. And especially in uh, uh, the new situation where kings would eventually be uh, appointed, prophets would have part of a function to remind the kings how they should or should not behave. Prophets would provide checks and balances amongst the different cadre of leadership. Now the words of the prophet might be misused. Some might speak them when they hadn't been given a word from the Lord. Some might be rejected because their uncomfortable words uh, uh, were not true. But despite the limitations of the priest and prophet, both exercise their ministry from the margins, not because they're secure economically, not because they've been elected by a majority. These roles, these ministries, are poking God's people to remind them that it's not just what we see around us that guides us. We need God's fresh voice coming to us. Now, words have limitations. Those who have been entrusted to speak have limitations as well, but that's just bad luck. Words are still the best way that God has of leading his people, even though they have limitations. God continues to speak to us with words through the scriptures, through preachers, through teachers. Now, Moses is teaching the people here that uh, he will raise up for them a prophet like him. There were, of course, many prophets in the Old Testament story, but ultimately the prophet that God raised up was the great prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who preaches, who interprets the law, and who is given the name, the Word of God. He is the ultimate communication strategy. He is the great prophet amongst prophets. If there are prophets today, they're all subservient to him, that great prophet. 
And I think there are people who prophesy today. Indeed, in Joel chapter 2, there was a promise that one day all men and women would prophesy, old and young. Prophecy was going to be democratised. In Acts chapter 2, Peter says the days arrive when God is actually going to use men and women, old and young, to speak his words. In Colossians 3, all God's people have responsibility for speaking and preaching, for the word of God dwells richly amongst us. 1 Corinthians 14 begins and ends with Paul encouraging people to seek the gift of prophesying. Though, of course, in 1 John 4, we are to test the spirits. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, we're not to despise prophecies. The difference is, of course, that in the New Testament age, when you get it wrong, you're not stoned. Prophecy has been democratised. We all have it. That's what it, you get when you have the spirit. But when Agabus in Acts 21 gets it wrong, people just move on. Paul ignores him and goes up to Jerusalem anyway. Yes, you can't be what you can't see, but our people can't fear what they don't hear. We have to make every effort to communicate God's words, to make his voice heard. There were prophets in the Old Testament who were responsible for passing on God's words. And there are those in New Testament days, in our own day, with lesser authority who have the task of prophesying, of applying God's word to particular people at a particular moment. I'm probably prophesying right now. Obedience comes from hearing the word of God and faith comes from hearing the word of God and sanctification comes from hearing the word of God. We must, in our own place, in our own way, exercise a ministry of prophesying in order that we might be like the Lord Jesus himself. Let me conclude with these words from Hebrews 1. In this paragraph, we see how Christ is prophet, how Christ is priest, how Christ is king. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So let me pray. Please, Heavenly Father, may we be examples. Please, may we be exhorters. Please, may we give a model for the way people around us should live. Please, may we use your word to speak words of life in season and out of season and trust to you the impact. 
Please teach us to love you more that we might lead like you too. For Christ's sake. Amen.